0: If you have your Bible, open with me to Luke chapter 13. We're going to only camp in a few verses, four or five verses. Luke chapter 13, beginning in uh, verse 31, uh, and we'll go to verse 35. And it looks like when you first look at this passage, that Jesus is in a playground standoff um, with a little bit of name calling and all that. But as you slow down and actually get into it, you realize there is a bunch being said in a very short amount of time. If we see nothing else this morning, I want to see this about Jesus. Jesus committed to fulfilling his mission according to the Father's timing and will. Jesus committed to fulfilling his mission according to the Father's timing and will. The reality is, the invitation of Jesus isn't to just believe and then wait for heaven. And a lot of times, though, we preach, come, believe, and sit. But what Jesus invites us is believe and follow. Follow. Follow Jesus. Watch Jesus. Obey Jesus. And just to tell you very forthrightly, there's a lot that Jesus calls his people to that is not easy. And quite honestly, I would even argue, is impossible. The calling of Jesus isn't a lighthearted, easy comfortable calling it is one of obedience and of suffering and of pain and of rejection and of hurt but the beautiful thing is unlike any other religion or any other manager or any other boss or any other leader Jesus has gone before us to endure suffering to endure the wrath of God to endure hardship so that through him we have a way not only to see the finish line and achieve it But to have the strength to endure it as it goes on by his spirit. And that's the hope we have as we see and follow after Jesus. So, more than us talking a bunch about us, I want to talk about Jesus as he engages with these people called the Pharisees. Starting in verse 31. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons. And perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. So the Pharisees, it's interesting when you read a bunch of different commentaries, people want to put some of these Pharisees in a nice light. But why would Jesus go tell his buddies to go tell Herod? Jesus knew they would go back and report whatever he said. Pharisees, after all, were the group of people that wanted to stop Jesus because they believed he was leading people astray. And while some Pharisees did eventually come to believe in Jesus as Messiah, I would say this confrontation is one to try to get Jesus to go away from Jerusalem. After all, Jerusalem is the hub of Judaism at this time, the place of gathered worship and the place of influence. And so these Pharisees come up to Jesus. Now, mind you, if if you recall Luke 13, if you you don't, I'd encourage you to go back and read it this week because we'll be in Luke 14 next week. But in Luke 13, Jesus is bringing all types of warnings. He's telling, now, now, mind you, when you tell a non-believer, non-religious, non-Jewish person to repent, change their direction, change their orientation, change their belief, that is understood to a Jewish mind in this time. But earlier in this chapter, he was telling God's chosen people, the Jewish people, to repent. And that wouldn't be a warm invitation for the religiously righteous, those who are well-behaved and perform according to their rituals. That would be offensive. And so some people might view Jesus as just being provocative and confrontational. But as we get deeper into these few verses, we'll see that his urging of them wasn't based upon mere anger or mere tit-for-tat mentality it was intended out of great compassion for the fact that they had gotten so blinded to their own need for dependence on the father that they had created their own righteousness based on obedience and that righteousness is not good enough it's not good enough so the very hours pharisees came and said to him get away from here for herod wants to kill you seems like a good warning Herod indeed wanted him to be stopped. Herod did not want to share any allegiance or any power or any authority with anyone else. He wanted to be the king of the region. And Jesus, now, now mind you, oftentimes we preach Jesus as this timid and soft, weak, spineless savior that just come to me. And while he could be tenderhearted and compassionate, he was also determined. He says, go and tell that fox. Why would he say that? Was he saying, hoping they wouldn't say anything? No. He said, go tell him. Go tell this man who has an illusion of power. Go tell this man who thinks he is in control. Go tell this man who believes that he has any authority over life and death at all. While he had judicial authority... The only person that can give life and take life is God. After all, Jesus' life wasn't taken from him. It was given. He laid it down. So he said, go tell that fox. Now, we might be thinking all oh, foxes are cute. I think we might have even seen some on this campus. So be careful. I mean, it's Brenham. I mean, there's, there's animals. But he's not saying, go tell the super fluffy, fantastic Mr. Fox... the deceptive, sly, and in antiquity could sometimes mean useless, ultimately powerless, rodent-like. Go tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and I perform cures. Who has more authority over life? Is Herod able to go and cast out demons? Is Herod able to have authority over spiritual things? No. Herod might believe that he is able to take life, but is he able to give it? Is he able to restore it? The illusion of power or the illusion of lacking power is greatly disorienting for people. I don't like to feel out of control, do you? No. We all want a semblance of some sort of control. And so whether the Pharisees were just trying to scare him and to get him going, or if that's truly a message from their pal Herod, it's hard to say. But I'm less confused or even intrigued by the Pharisees' activity and statement and more interested in how Jesus responds to this, go and tell that fox, the insignificant, sly, cunning, deceptive one, the one who has deceived himself into believing that he can actually have any authority at all, that I'm actually going and casting out demons. Spiritual things are under my submission, and they have no power, where I tell them they have no power. And illness, and being crippled, and lame, and broken, has no ultimate power compared to my power. So compared to the power and authority of God being manifest and extended in and through the person and ministry of Jesus has no comparison, has no match, cannot be thwarted or stopped until God says, now's the time for it to be stopped. And Jesus says, I perform cures today and tomorrow and the third day I finish my course. It's not literally three days later he's done. But he's saying, in my timing, according to my authority, when I say so, it will be done. Now we have to remember Jesus isn't arrogantly projecting his godness as much as he's dependently trusting in his Father. He's not arrogantly projecting his godness. He's submitting to the Father. While he is fully God and he is fully man, we can see that Jesus lived by faith and not by fear. Jesus lived by faith and not by fear. The writers of Hebrews in Hebrews 11.1 one says, What is faith but the confident assurance of what we hope for is going to happen and the evidence of things not yet seen? He trusted his Father to the extent of even one who had some siblings of ...authority and power over all living beings in that region. He was not intimidated. He was not threatened. And his plan and his commitment to God's calling would not be thwarted... ...because he lived by faith. As we follow Jesus... ...we have a tendency to walk daily looking in the mirror of... ...how is our faith doing? How am I doing? What have I done to maintain my faith... But a better question is, who am I trusting? Who or what am I trusting? Because here Jesus, his boldness wasn't for the sake of tweeting or or Facebooking online, his strong religious or political opinion so that he could be right. His declaration was just fact-telling. It was truth-telling. Hey, go tell the insignificant one that I'm going to continue to do significant things according to the timing laid out before me. Because he's living by faith, by trust, and not by fear. Remember, Herod did kill Jesus' cousin and the one who baptized him, John the Baptist. Herod had him beheaded. So obviously Herod did have some say over life and death. But as typical, Jesus goes beyond just that which is seen and immediately perceived to express truth not only to those Pharisees whose hearts were hardened, but also to Herod whose heart was sly. And I want you to keep that in mind. Another way that they referred to foxes, were they they were life-taking and destroying. They messed things up. In a minute when Jesus talks about gathering his hens who are now kissing up to Herod, who will ultimately be continually oppressed and held down by the Roman Empire, I want you to keep that in mind when he says, go and tell that fox, I know who you are. And I understand what you are. And I know what you believe you think you can do. But I'm going to continue going about giving life as you go threatening to take it. Pick up in verse 33 with me. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following. For it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Look, Jesus was confident as to where he would end his mission. And he's going to finish his ministry as a prophet. We say often that Jesus was the ultimate prophet, the fulfillment of the prophets and their prophecies. That he was the ultimate one that they were all pointing towards in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament. They were proclaiming and pointing God's people towards preparation and realization that on their own they could never restore rightness with the Father. No matter how many sacrifices they brought or religious practices they fulfilled, no matter how good they felt they became, they were never going to match the glorious perfection of our Creator. And understand this, Jesus, Jesus wasn't saying that all of the prophets had died in Jerusalem. Not all of them had, but many did. At the hands of Jerusalem, which is representing greater Israel. Read throughout scriptures, throughout the time when God would send his prophets to realign his people towards relationship and faith, his people would rebel and silence them. And thank God that God's ultimate prophet cannot and will not be silenced. Amen? Amen? He won't be silenced, even by death. His life continues to speak. Even through his resurrection, it continues to speak. But ultimately, Jesus was acknowledging that he was to die both in and at the hands of Jerusalem. Think about it. He's telling these very religious Pharisees, Herod's not going to be the one to kill me. Y'all are. I'm not sure if you used the word y'all uh, back then. There is some Koine Greek that can be interpreted that way. Three of us are laughing because it's kind of true. The rest of you are like, he's a nerd. All right, so. You want to blame shift and put it on Herod, and ultimately Herod was involved, but Herod was not the cause. Jerusalem was. God's people were. The Pharisees specifically were involved. Look, Jesus knew he would be rejected, but he obeyed anyways. Jesus knew he was going to be rejected. I don't know about you, I I don't like feeling rejected. It brings out a bunch of deep stuff, like elementary school type stuff. And I'm getting help, don't worry. Uh, But it it echoes a lot of wounds. I mean, what do humans want? We want to be safe and accepted. We want relationship. We want to be meaningful in our lives and we want our relationships to bring about great meaning. And the reality is sin breaks those relationships. And a lot of times our obedience is contingent based upon acceptance. If it's acceptable, then it's, it's okay to obey. But, but quite honestly, what we can see from King Jesus as he's leading through this time is that Jesus obeyed even though he knew he would be rejected. Even though he knew his own people would not approve. Even though he knew that they would cry out for his death. Even though they would long to see him stopped and silenced because he was disrupting their hope in themselves to be made right with God through their obedience to rituals or through the birthright faith relationship they were meant to have. He knew he would be rejected. At this point, he knew the story, but he obeyed anyway. And then then in verse 34, we see his heart. We see the compassion, that he's not just name-calling, he's not just um, trying to give a proverbial nanny-nanny-boo-boo. He's cutting through the nonsense and saying, that guy's irrelevant. Here's what matters. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often I would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing... Thank you for being concerned for my safety. Go tell that fox I'm going to continue on. But here's the real issue. Here's what really matters. How long have I desired for you and yours to come under my protection, my guardianship, the liberation that the Father brings to His people, but you continue to refuse? You are unwilling I love how Jesus pushes right through the symptoms, the manifested symptoms, the things that are showing, and says, nah-ah, well, let's go to the source. Herod's not the real problem, your unbelief is. Look, this is the place, Jerusalem was the representation of God's chosen people, Israel. It was the place that they gathered to worship and to sacrifice. It's the place they came to bring their offerings. It was a place that they gathered as his people to bring his worth, yet they wanted to use the temple and the experience to be a reflection of their worth rather than an amplification of his In Israel, Jerusalem were historically the people that killed their own prophets. So Jesus, the son of God, fully God, fully man, humbled himself to become flesh, sent to his own people first, knowing the historical trajectory of rejection of the majority of prophets throughout history, did not use this time to call Herod a fox and then to call them a bunch of choice names but rather called out in compassion with invitation for them to come and hear, for them to come and trust, for them to turn around, for them to be acceptable to God, not through their birthright, but through Christ. I mean, the idea of a hen gathering her brood under her wings, I mean, this is the Brennamaria. Some of y'all have Chickens. Right? Those of us who lived in suburbs, we bought eggs. For more health conscious, we bought them from farmers who brought them into our comfort zone. But some of you have seen the protective nature of a mother hen that she has, and Jesus is giving this picture like, I would have covered you. I would have provided you with acceptance and nurturing and protection. But notice what He says, How often would I have? His entire ministry, not just chapter 13, but his entire ministry was focused on bringing the children home. So the strong words he was using wasn't out of just being right. It was in effort and hopes that they would be thoroughly warned and thoroughly invited to a right relationship. He says, I have longed to gather you. These other prophets were coming in obedience for the Father to gather you. How do you respond to the one coming to bring you home? You kill them. You reject them. But he still says, How often would I gather you? He longed for them to repent and enter the kingdom. He wanted to be their protection. Not them butting up to a non-believing Herod, but to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. They were unwilling. Let's break this down. Unwilling. They were unwilling to trust. In fact, oftentimes people say the basis of all sin is pride. That's what Augustine, or Augustine depends on how you like to pronounce it, says that that the root of all sin is is, is, uh, Pride. The root of all sin is pride, but really the issue of sin is mistrust. Misplace or lack of trust. I mean, every relationship is founded on trust. You are unwilling to trust, is what he's saying. And look, trusting Jesus is the only hope to have a restored relationship with the Father. That's the only hope. It's the only hope for your marriage to be reconnected and, and, and your relationship to be restored. It's the only hope you have for continued provision and protection in this life. It's the only hope you have if provision and protection runs out in this life and it leads to death that you have eternity with the Creator. It's the only hope. And so when we preach week in and week out and and strive to center on the gospel each week here, it's not to point out how messed up we are. It's to focus on how great He is and that He's inviting us to more of Himself to liberate us from the addiction we have to ourselves and to our stuff and to our worth and to our security and liberate us towards the freedom that He has purchased through His life, death, and resurrection. This freedom, this power is afforded to us not because we deserve it or have earned it or where we've been born, but because solely it was God's pleasure to provide it through His Son. He would have gathered them and restored them and connected them and freed them But sadly, he says in verse 35, Behold, your house is forsaken. It's a solemn charge that the power and presence of God has truly left. We pray, God, forsake me not. Forsake us not. Do not leave us. I fear that a lot of times we've bought into a gospel that gets us started but doesn't see us to the end. That we believe that God saves us through Jesus when we make a decision and then it's up to us to maintain it to the end. I, I want you to be very clear that the Bible teaches that God starts it and finishes it. He who began the good work in you is faithful to see it to completion. Some of you are here today are somewhat hard-hearted. You've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. You know that Jesus Christ is king, but your trust has started to waver into other people's things stuff. And so the charge of repentance for God's chosen people, His elect, the church, is to say, let's realign ourselves, rethink and refocus, because ultimately, friends, we must be frequently reminded trusting Jesus is the only hope we have, to be restored into right relationship with the Father. And their unbelief, their lack of trust, has led to a place of being forsaken, that God's presence and blessing will be removed from His manifest presence in the temple, which we will ultimately see fulfilled and AD 70 when the temple is destroyed and the Jewish people since that time have not been afforded the opportunity to offer sacrifices and worship in that same place. Your house is forsaken. You have to make a decision if Jesus, who is showing signs and wonders, offers this declaration. Your house is forsaken. The power is gone. The presence has left. And I tell you, he says, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's a solemn charge that the power and presence of God has left. Unbelief. Martin Luther puts it this way. Sin is nothing more than unbelief in our innermost being. The challenge is we, we, we hold each other accountable, whether it's in marriage or in friendship or in Bible study or whatever, and all we ever really deal with is the expressed sin activity or sinful inaction. What we need to start asking ourselves is, what are you believing in? What are you trusting in? Are you trusting in money? Are you trusting in alcohol? Are you trusting in food? Are you trusting in sex? What are you trusting in? to bring satisfaction and comfort and hope. Where are you placing your trust? Because then we can start getting somewhere. Because the sins that we partake in or the sinful omissions that we commit are rooted in belief, mine and yours. I I am no better than any of you, just as broken and needy. If you really know me, probably somewhat more. But that's not a weight too heavy for our King Jesus to carry. The bag's not too heavy. It's not too heavy. He's still longing to gather us as a hen gathers her chicks. When we're able to say, I trust you and I need you, I depend on you, I can't do it on my own. And even if I think I could, I won't. Are you willing to say, I won't do it on my own? Are you willing to say that even in days where you don't feel his presence or don't necessarily believe he's true? Are you willing to do that through your doubts? Are you willing to do that in an isolating argument you're having with your spouse that's been ongoing for not weeks, but years? Are you willing to say, God, I trust you. Work in me. But he says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, this... This declaration isn't just a foreshadow towards him saying, watch when I come back. It's them coming to a place of realization in this life or the next that he is indeed the Messiah. So I want to give you three little takeaways and we'll be done and hopefully beat the Methodists to to lunch. First is this, we can have faith in the midst of our fears. Why? Because we're following Jesus. Jesus means we can have faith. That doesn't mean we, we have like an inner pep rally and row, rowdy ourselves up and get kind of meat and loud and boast declarations on Facebook or wherever you're posting these days. It, it's not a, an, an arrogance, it's a humility. When you're feeling fear, ask the question, what am I afraid of? What am I believing is going to happen? Where am I lacking faith and belief? And own it. We can have faith in the midst of our fears, and quite honestly, I think it's sometimes our fears that help us grow in our faith. We make the choice when we're willing to say, God, in the midst of this, I don't see how it's going to happen or work out, but I'm choosing to trust you. Even more than my own feelings or my own sense of righteousness or my own sense of offense, I'm going to trust you. And some of you might be saying, Casey, look, man, that's That might be easy for you. You've been doing this Christian thing for 20 years or whatever, but you don't understand what's going on. Look, I may not understand, but he does. And fortunately, the Bible talks about faith the size of a mustard seed, not of an avocado core. I mean, that's even a prayer of, I don't even see how, but God, fortunately, he's not calling you to have his sight. He has it. He's inviting you to hope and trust. He's inviting you to accept his no at times. He's inviting you to trust that he might know better than you actually know, even if you feel really, really right. And for those of us that are certain a lot, one of my counselor friends says, Casey, one of the ways I experience you is certain. I'm certain a lot. I'm really scared inside, but I'm certain outside. I experience you as certain. Well, Those of us that are certain need to have a variation for hope and trust and deferring and be okay when things don't go certainly our way. But for those of you that are crippled by fear or have lost hope, the beautiful nature of the Christian faith is that it's not intended to be lived in isolation or alone, but in relationship with each other and with the Lord. So we can have faith in the midst of our fears. That's the power that, that's, that's given to you to take from Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus, that's yours to have. It's not for you to muster up. I, I, we can cry out like the man, God, I do believe, but help my unbelief. We, we, can, we can say that prayer not with shame or guilt, but with honesty. Not there yet. Help. The second thing we can learn from watching Jesus in this is that we can choose obedience over convenience. We can choose obedience over convenience. Whether it's with how we steward our money and our time, whether it's how we approach our spouses, it's it's how we follow after Jesus, it's how we choose to have harder conversations, it's how we choose to own and confess our brokenness at times. But through Christ, we can choose obedience over convenience. That's been given to us already. The way has been The path has been carved, and the Holy Spirit and the Word of God gives us an easy tag that gives us permission to choose obedience. And if you're not sure what obedience looks like yet, we go back to the first thing I just said where we can have faith in the midst of our fears. Sometimes you swing and you miss. The last thing we can see in this passage, and we'll wrap up, is that we can enjoy a growing relationship with the Father through Jesus, that we don't have to live forsaken. And the reality is for many, many years we have taught come to Jesus so that you don't go to hell. But we never really talked about, yes, it's torment and it's torture and it's isolation. But think about it, it's isolation. It's, it's absence of relationship, which is at the crux of what sin has caused. It's absence of all things good because God is good. It's absence of his protection and of his power and of his peace. It's absent of his love and his kindness and his patience. It's absent of true life and community We can enjoy a growing relationship with the Father through Jesus. Why? Because Jesus committed to fulfilling his mission according to the Father's timing and will to become the perfect sacrifice, the perfect offering, and the one who conquered sin and death and Satan by the power of his resurrection. Hope in Christ. And that is all. Let's pray.